1991, Derek Hamilton was 28 years old, and he was accused and arrested for the murder of Nathaniel Cash, a man he knew when he lived in Brooklyn, New York. Hamilton's arrest was based largely on the, te uh, the testimony of the victim's girlfriend at the time, Jewel Smith. She was the sole witness to the murder. Smith's accounts of what happened were inconsistent, they were conflicting, but still the jury of the New York State Supreme Court convicted Hamilton of murder and he was sent away to various prisons in upstate New York. Derek Hamilton spent over two decades in prison, a portion of which he spent in solitary confinement. And in all those years, he maintained that he was innocent and tirelessly worked to crawl himself out of what he called the lowest point of his life. He even learned how to do some legal work. And in 2007, the main witness, Jewel Smith, went back to authorities and asserted that Hamilton was innocent. She said that police had coerced her testimony. So eight more years go by, and the conviction review unit in Brooklyn asked the judge to toss out Hamilton's guilty verdict. And they tossed out 14 other verdicts that were connected to the same officer that arrested Hamilton. After 23 years, Hamilton was released from prison. Now, we could draw plenty of lessons from Derek Hamilton's story and others like him. But for our purposes, the moral of Derek Hamilton's story is that getting someone's identity right can have very high stakes life or death stakes. And so it is all the more important to weigh the evidence carefully in getting someone's identity right. Now, though we might not see the weight of its importance right away, the stakes are just as high, maybe even higher. No, I know even higher for getting Jesus's identity right. In our relativistic age, where we determine what is true, Views of Jesus abound. They are everywhere. From Jesus being a good teacher who has insights on life, from Jesus being just another prophet from God, from Jesus being to someone who is like a genie or Santa who gives us stuff we want, from Jesus being someone who is like a modern-day self-help motivational speaker, from Jesus being someone who is twisted to support modern government and social causes, be it on the right or the left. From Jesus being, especially during this time of year, just a little infant who was born in a no-name town. Different views of Jesus multiply. They're everywhere. As Christians, those who believe, worship, and follow Jesus, we should deal with the best evidence for Jesus that we have first-hand eyewitness accounts so that we get Jesus right. So what we're going to do today, we're going to look at the first few verses in the gospel according to John. And the main takeaway I think we should get from this, the first few verses, is that embracing Jesus for who he actually is, is the key for life both now and forever. Embracing Jesus for who he actually is is the key for life both now and forever. That's a big claim. Hopefully we can back up that claim as we go through these verses. If you're, uh, I invite you to turn in a Bible with me to John chapter 1. If you're looking at a Bible that's provided, you'll find it on page 886. 
There's no page number there, but it is page 886. 887 comes right after it. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, just that first paragraph. Word of God reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Two big questions, very simple questions to give us bearings for our time. Who is Jesus, and why does it matter? Who is Jesus and why does it matter? My prayer is during our time in the written word of God, the spirit of God will give us eyes to see the beauty of the son of God. So first big question, who is Jesus? We're going to answer that going through this passage. Phrase by phrase, we'll see six different aspects of Jesus. Who is Jesus? The first aspect is that Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. We're going off right that opening part of verse 1. It says, in the beginning. If you're familiar with the Bible, you hear that phrase, in the beginning, it should ring a little bell. It sounds like the beginning of Genesis. And that's intentional on John's part. We see a lot of Genesis-like elements in this opening part of John. We see creation. We see life. We see light and so on. If you know Genesis, then you know that Genesis, when it speaks of the beginning, it's talking about really the beginning of everything of history, the universe, time, space, matter. And what John is doing here is that he looks in the beginning and he lifts us beyond it. And he tells us what was there at the beginning. So he says the word was there at the beginning. He did not come about at the beginning. Now, around the corner from here, just Fowles turns into Eastland, you will run into the Cuyahoga County Fairgrounds. And now, there's just endless sermon illustrations from the Cuyahoga County Fair. Um, one of them being every single year at the Cuyahoga County Fair, there is that same guy, he's in the same place on the same corner. He is the guy that everybody goes to in order for them to guess their weight and to guess their age. You have to be really secure with yourself to go see this guy. Um, now, some people's ages are very hard to guess. You know, they look older than they really are. They look younger than they actually are. Um, when it comes to Jesus, though, if Jesus went to this guy, the guessing game wouldn't quite work. John is saying, when you talk about the real Jesus, you have to go beyond his earthly life, beyond the creation of everything, back into all eternity. That's where Jesus was. Jesus is eternal. There was never a time when he was not. So when you see that opening phrase, in the beginning was, that verb was, is a continuous sense. He was in, in existence continually before time and before creation. I know if you try to think about that too hard, we can't rip our heads around it. We are limited, finite. So Jesus being eternal means that he existed before his birth at Bethlehem. We should be clear about that. Not everybody believes that. Jesus being eternal means that he was not created. Again, we should be clear about that. Not everyone believes that. 
We'll have more on that soon. So in the words of famous commentator Matthew Henry, he says, He that was in the beginning never began. Jesus is eternal. Second aspect from these opening verses, just going phrase by phrase. Second aspect about the real Jesus uh, that we see the opening part of John is that he is the Word. John calls him just a curious title, the Word. Now, the word for the Word is logos. There's been much ink spilled over what logos means. Uh, Some argue that logos is a word that John uses to appeal both to those of Jewish backgrounds and to Greek backgrounds. Uh, You know, the way both Jews and Greeks use this word, uh, Jesus applies to both of them. I think there's a good case to be made for that. I'm more persuaded, though, that you keep in mind who is writing this, John, a Jewish man himself. I think he has, in the front of his mind, Jewish categories of what the Word of God is. And we get a rich background in the Old Testament, knowing what the Word of God is. So what do we see the Word of God in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, God's Word is alive in creation. Go back to Genesis again. God spoke, and creation happened. Unbelievable. God's word we see in the Old Testament also reveals who he is. So God speaks to communicate his character, to guide his people, to communicate his purpose. So God's word is in creation, it reveals, and God's word also redeems. Through his word, he saves, he delivers, he judges. So in the Old Testament, God's word is so closely identified with him that his word is said to be eternal. Psalm 119 says, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. So God's word, just looking at Old Testament background, is his self-expression. It's how he acts. It's how he communicates. It's how he is present. One theologian sums it up this way. He says, where God is, his word is, and vice versa. So God makes himself known in creation, revelation, and redemption through his word. And John here is telling us that this word is not an abstract principle. This word is ultimately a person, a being, who has always existed, but who would, as we see later in verse 14, take on flesh and dwell among us, and who would later, verse 18, make known the invisible God. So Jesus being the word means that in Jesus, the permanent final unveiling of God has taken place. He is how God ultimately makes known himself, his character, his will, his ways. Jesus is the word. Now we've hinted at the third aspect of the real Jesus in the opening part of John. The third aspect is that he is distinct from God distinct from God. It's pretty easy to see. Building what we have so far, in the beginning, eternal, the word, we talked about what that means, God's self-disclosure. In the beginning, the word was with God. We translate that literally, it would read that the word was toward God. Shows the relationship between the word and the father from all eternity. His existence was toward the father in closest possible connection with him. So these are two distinct beings, but they are one. Two distinct beings, but they are one. This is important because it goes against, not everyone believes this, it goes against errors known as 
Sabellianism or modalism. Those terms are way big and you can't remember them. Don't remember, don't worry about it. But these are schools of thought that maintain that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are different names for one person. In other words, that God exists sometimes as Father, other times as Son, and other times as Spirit. You know, Modern-day groups that believe this would be a group like a oneness Pentecostal group or believe in modalist teaching. But just this verse right here refutes that. The Son and the Father existing at the same time, distinct from one another. See at the baptism of Jesus, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all present there. So we see that the Word and the Father existing at the same time, two distinct persons, one God. You see, John does not say, God was with God. John says, the Word was with God. So we want to make sure we get Jesus right. Just going through the nuts and bolts of who Jesus is, where John shows us right at the beginning of his account of him. So, so far, we've seen that Jesus is eternal, that he is the word, that he is distinct from God. But also, we say, fourthly, that the word was God. The word was, or the word is God still. John is describing who Jesus has always been. The eternal son of God has always been the second person of the Trinity, distinct from the Father and the Spirit, has always shared the same essence as God. So just to be absolutely crystal clear about something. We, at Old Oak Bible Church, worship Jesus Christ as God. At Old Oak, and every Christian church, every true Christian church, worships Jesus Christ as God. They worship the triune God, but Jesus Christ is equal with God the Father and God the Spirit. So now, throughout his life, just reading Jesus' accounts is in the Gospels. Jesus repeatedly makes claims of equality with God the Father. And just given those claims about himself, you know, someone like C.S. Lewis says, you, can eat, you have three options. You can dismiss Jesus as a liar, a lunatic, or you embrace him for who he actually is. Given the radical claims about himself, he can't just be a nice guy. So for one example... John 10, we hear people push back. People understand what Jesus is doing and making claims about his equality with the Father. John 10, says, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. People understood what he was doing. And so against that refute, we say, no, this is not blasphemy. This is true. This is who our Savior is. This is our Lord. This is our God. So just a quick note. I know this is nuts and bolts time, more nutty and bolty here. The phrase, the word was God, is infamous because some groups, some groups like Jehovah's Witnesses, translate that phrase as the word was a God. That's how they will translate that phrase. Now, most of the time, the debate revolves around how you, like the Greek, the original language. And the end of that discussion, even if you don't know Greek, is that the best translation is the word was God. It, you take other examples like this that John uses, other grammatical Greek examples that John himself uses. The best translation, the word was God. But friends, even if you don't know Greek, this is still the best way to translate it. The word was God. Again, just remember who is writing. 
John. John himself, a Jewish background. One of the main confessions of the, of the Jews was the Shema from Deuteronomy. The Lord your God is one. They believed in one God. Saying that Jesus is a God would imply that John believes in multiple gods. No way. No way. And we'll see how Jesus relates to creation is another reason why it can't be translated the word was a God. Just more on that soon. But friends, false teaching abounds when it comes to who Jesus is. And false teaching usually comes in when groups attempt to overly simplify the Christian faith by picking up one truth and holding on to it so tightly that they forget about other truths as well. Now, when it comes to Jesus, the Bible, including John 1.1 and John 1.14, calls us to hold up both truths, that Jesus is both God and man. We have to hold on to both, not just one or the other. The Bible calls us to hold on to both truths, that Jesus is both distinct and equal to God the Father. Now, where, we get, where groups get into trouble is where they demand that we just hold on to one truth and not both. Does that make sense? So in one just incredible, simple, beautiful statement, John says that this word has existed in all of eternity, that he has personal communion with God and shares God's nature. Just a couple more aspects. I think we got four and five left. Just look back at verses three to five. We'll read those one more time says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So the fifth aspect we see of Jesus from these verses is that he is life. He is life. Now, how does Jesus relate to creation? Now, look carefully at verse 3 says, all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Now, what is the category that verse 3 talks about? Now, look at the last three words of verse 3. It says, things that were made. So, any, you could just, you, if you're taking notes, you could draw a little box. Draw a little box. Things that were made. Anything that was made. That's what Jesus made. Separate box, Jesus made anything that was made. Now, friends, this was implied that Jesus does not fall under the category of things that were made. That's very important. That is how you refute that Jesus is not created. There are groups that believe that. This is important. Jesus is eternal. And so these verses show that Jesus is life. That he is the agent of creation, as a lot of people call it. He's the instrument God used to make everything. And even as the agent of creation, he is God himself. His work in creation shows that he is the source of physical life. More than that, he is the source of spiritual life. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive in Christ Jesus. He is the source of eternal life. 1 John 5.11 says God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, the source of life. Jesus later says in John 10, I came to, that they would have life and life abundantly. 
Finally, rounding out, nuts and bolts time, almost done. Sixth aspect of the real Jesus we see from the opening of John is that he is light. He is light. Now, Jesus being both life and light, this just further claims that he is equal with God. God is the source of light. God is the source of life. John is saying that Jesus is the same. Jesus will call himself the light of the world and that anyone who follows him will never walk in darkness but have the light of life. So later on in the narrative, we see in the book, since he is life, he gives life to dead Lazarus. Since he is light, he gives sight to a man born blind. So the source of light and life entered the world, took on flesh, and the darkness did not overcome him. Jesus exposes the darkness of the world. The darkness does not like it. But notice John says, the light still shines. Now, at certain times in the year, in the state of Alaska, um, never been there, would love to go. It looks very pretty. Uh, in the state of Alaska, it's, it says it's, like it's light outside for something like 22 hours a day. It's crazy. Apparently, people mow their lawns at something like 11 at night. I don't know how big of a fan I'd be of that. Um, but even if you are in Alaska, even if you choose to live there for some reason, darkness will come each day. So in Jesus Christ, what John is saying is that dawn has broken, light has come, and darkness does not put him out. So here is the real Jesus. The eternal word of God who is the second person of the Trinity, who is equal with yet distinct from God the Father, who is the life and light of the world. This is the one who took on flesh while remaining truly God. That is the miracle of the incarnation. That is the beauty of Christmas. Theologian J.I. Packer puts it so eloquently. He says, God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie there and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught like any other child. The babyhood of the son of God was a reality. And the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. He says, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. Now, for a moment, I want you to think about the moment of truth. The moment of truth, you're just like, what's the moment of truth? I'm going to tell you. It's the most decisive event for us this season. At least we make it out to be. It comes when you are in line at Heinen's or Walgreens or at Target, and it's your turn and your items get scanned, and then the cashier hands you your receipt, and then comes the final farewell, here it comes, happy holidays, <laughs> have a good holiday. Friends, should we get angry? What's really the point? Is the point that the world acts like it's Christian when it's really not? Does it honor Christ? For someone who doesn't believe in him to use his name in what's ultimately a thoughtless cultural greeting. 
You can come to your own opinion on that. But insisting that the guy at Target says Merry Christmas is not what it means to keep Christ in Christmas. Doing that, I would wager, is closer to just sprinkling on some Jesus on our consumerism. Keeping Christ in Christmas looks more like displaying the joy that shocks angels, that redirects wise men, that knocks shepherds to the ground, the joy that we know Jesus, the eternal word of God, the son of God, became man, come to rescue us, to live for us, to die for us. That joy. Carl Henry puts it like this. He says, the early church didn't say, look at what the world is coming to. They said, look who is coming into the world. Let's take a similar stance. The real Jesus. We know him. Now, friends, do you remember in high school, some of us are still in it, uh, some of us is way back when. Do you remember in high school when you took geometry or algebra or calculus? Isn't it at one point in your life you did math every day? Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Wild times. Now the groan of all math students sooner or later becomes, when are we going to use this in real life? <laughs> Why does this matter? Now, teachers and others probably can come up with some several different reasons why it matters, but are any of them really that convincing? Now, we've spent a good amount of time seeking to be accurate and precise about who Jesus really is, but we'll ask the same fair question that all true math students ask. Why does it matter? Why does this matter? There are at least three reasons, each of which we can see through a story from the Bible. Now, the first reason of why it matters that we get Jesus right, flip later to the book of John, you find chapter 14. At this point in the book, Jesus is toward the end of his earthly ministry. Lots of departing words for his disciples. Carefully explains to them that he was going to prepare a place for them and would one day return. Now, the disciples weren't super thrilled to hear that Jesus was leaving them. In fact, they were depressed at this thought. Now, attempting to reassure them, Jesus reminds them of who he is. But in typical fashion, the disciples are pretty aloof, thick-headed, and inconsolable. Now, one of his disciples, Philip, made a request of Jesus in verse 8 of chapter 14. See, it says there, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Basically, Philip was saying, Jesus, if I could just see God, then I'd be fine. It'd be enough. But Philip didn't realize who was right in front of him. Look at how Jesus responds to Philip in verse 9. He says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Here's the important part. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Friends, getting Jesus right matters if we are to know God. If you want to know God, you must know Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, study the life of Jesus Christ. You might have heard people describe trying to get to know God like different blind people trying to, going into a room with an elephant and feeling it and trying to guess what it is. 
You know, one blind person grabs the trunk, concludes the elephant is a vine. The other person uh, grabs an ear, concludes it's something else. The other person grabs a tail, concludes it's something else. The other person grabs a tusk, concludes something else. More of the story is everybody has a bit of the truth. We all got to put it together, and then we can get more of God. What Jesus, though, claims here to Philip is that the elephant, in this case God, in him has spoken. Us blind people who can't know God on our own can know him through Jesus. So friend, if you're waiting like Philip for God to show up and definitively prove himself, maybe just through a watertight argument, consider for a moment that how God has made himself known, how God has proven himself, as one pastor points out, that God hasn't shown himself first through an argument, but first through a person against whom no argument can be made. God has given us a watertight person, not a watertight argument. He has the right to do that. So look at Jesus. You will not find anyone like him. You will not find anyone who makes such audacious claims but at the same time has wisdom and power and tenderness and love and then dies for people who hate him. If you want to know God, you have to know Jesus. You say it negatively. If you don't know Jesus, then you don't know God. Another story of why getting Jesus right matters when it, uh, it also comes in John. It comes at the very, near, uh, very end of the book in chapter 20. See, Jesus was crucified by this time. He was buried. He's now risen from the dead. And you might be familiar, there was one disciple, one tricky disciple who refused to believe that Jesus was alive, Thomas. Thomas maintained that he had to see, he had to touch Jesus physically before he would budge. This is where we pick up John chapter 20 and verse 26. It says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Getting Jesus right matters if we are to worship God. Getting Jesus right matters if we are to worship God. If Jesus truly is God, equal to him, then we should worship him. Here was Jesus receiving worship from Thomas. Thomas called him God. And Jesus didn't correct him. In the rest of the New Testament, we see people praying to Jesus. In praying to him, they identified him with God himself. We see people trusting in Jesus for salvation. Whereas in the Old Testament, God alone is the God of salvation. Yet people trust in Jesus for it. We see in the New Testament, Jesus is the source of all spiritual blessing. He's put on par with God the Father. He is truly God. Friend, if that sounds strange to you, if all this sounds strange, that we believe Jesus is God, then you should know it sounded even stranger to the first century Jewish people he came to. Among all the groups of people on earth, there was no other group who was less likely to believe that God could take on flesh and become human. No other group. It would be shocking for them. It would be a big hurdle for them as well. 
And yet one author says this, everything in the Hebrew worldview militated against the idea of a human being being God. The Jews could not even pronounce the name Yahweh nor spell it. And yet Jesus Christ, by his life, by his claims, by his resurrection, convinced his closest Jewish followers that he was not just a prophet telling them how to find God, but God himself coming to find them. Another author said, nobody can call himself a Christian who does not worship Jesus. To worship him if he is not God is idolatry. To withhold worship from him if he is God is apostasy. Friends, if you don't worship Jesus, then you don't worship God. 1 John 2.23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. One more story for why getting Jesus right matters. Why it matters that we know who he is, the eternal word, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son incarnate, taken on flesh. Now this story comes after the book of John. It starts in the book of Acts, gets picked up in 1 Timothy. Now by this time, thousands of people are following Jesus as Lord, trusting him for a good standing before God the Father, and worshiping him uh, as Lord. Convinced that this was blasphemy, a zealous Pharisee named Saul sought to squash the movement known as the way. So Saul arrested Christians. He even presided over the execution of Christians. He was on his way to another city going to do the same thing. And Jesus himself appeared to Saul, temporarily blinding him. And in a matter of days, Saul, who was now called Paul, went from being a terrorist of Christians to one who proclaimed that Jesus was the Son of God. Now, Paul wrote about this conversion several times, but perhaps the most powerful recounting of it comes in his first letter to his young protege pastor, Timothy. This is 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he tells Timothy that he used to be a blasphemer, a persecutor, in his words, an insolent opponent. But he received mercy. He says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And the story isn't over yet. As great as that truth is, Paul continues in chapter 2 and says that Jesus alone is qualified to save sinners. Chapter 2, verse 5, he says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men the man, Christ Jesus. So third reason, friends, why getting Jesus right matters. Getting Jesus right matters if we are to be forgiven. Getting Jesus right matters if we are to be forgiven. How can Jesus be our mediator between us and God? How can he stand in our place? If, it's only, friends, if Jesus is both truly God and truly man. If Jesus were not truly God, he could not bear the eternal weight of the judgment of our sin. If Jesus was not truly man, then he could not truly represent us and go on our behalf. So you see, he is uniquely qualified for this work. He is truly God, truly man, the one mediator who can go in our place. And there is no other. Paul says one mediator. So here we say, Friends, if you don't trust Jesus, then your sins are not paid for and cannot be forgiven without him. One mediator. 
So the truth about who Jesus is matters. It matters if we are to know God. It matters if we are to worship God. It matters if we are to be forgiven by God. Well, friends, let me ask you, what do you think of Jesus Christ? For most adults, for a lot of adults, especially in the West, author Glenn Schreiber argues, God and Jesus can be like Santa. God is distant. Uh, He has a big beard. Uh, No one ever sees him. He's irrelevant pretty much to our daily lives, except when we want stuff. Um, He might give us stuff when we're good, so he keeps track of everything we do. He makes a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Um, And he... We don't know much about him, but he knows everything about us. He keeps round-the-clock surveillance. He sees you when you're sleeping. <laughs> he knows when you're awake. Uh, which is, I mean, it's kind of creepy when you think about it, when you think about him being a Santa-like figure, which is why as people kind of grow out of Santa, if they view God as Santa, they kind of grow out of God as well. They conclude that God is distant, that he's impersonal, that he's a moralist. But then... You know, people examine the facts about Santa. They grow out of him. But we see something different in Jesus. The millions of people have examined the facts about him and believed in him. That unlike Santa, Jesus shows up in time and space and can be investigated. And Jesus is not the one who gives presents. He's the one who gave himself. He's not the rewarder of the good. He is the one who draws near to the brokenhearted and dies for those who know they aren't good. Because Jesus is the eternal Son of God, become man. As Hark the Herald Angel Singh puts it, he was born that man no more may die. When we see him for who he really is, we do more than trust him. We embrace him and follow him. The Apostle John wrote as one who knew Jesus personally and knew what Jesus brings to people. At the end of his books, he said, he said he could have written a lot more things about Jesus, included a lot of other stuff and events about Jesus' life in the Gospel of John, but he included what he did so that people would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and believing in him that people would have life in his name. Friends, trust in the real Jesus, the Son of God become man to live and die in your place and have life in his name. Let's pray. Oh, God in heaven, thank you. Jesus, thank you. You who are equal with God do not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled yourself by taking the form of a servant and by being obedient even to the point of death, even to death on a cross. All for our sake, Lord. Oh, Lord, thank you. Would we know the truth about you? And God, would you give us life in Jesus' name? We pray in his name. Amen.